How's everybody doing tonight? That good, huh? All right. Well, if this is your first week here, I am Chad Eskew. I mean, I'm Chad Eskew whether it's your first week here or not. But that's my name in case you haven't heard it or I haven't met you yet. Um, And we've been doing a series on emotions. We've been going through uh, the Bible and looking at several different emotions and thinking about what those emotions are and what they're supposed to do for us. Why has God designed us this way as these emotional beings? It's an imperative part. It's one-third of the whole of what makes us up as human beings. We have the capacities to think, we have capacities to choose and act, and we have this capacity to feel. And it's this imperative part, it's this part of us that... uh, that God is really targeting in, his, in, our, in the process of our sanctification and in making us more like Him. So, I want us to be able to understand our emotions and I want us to be able to handle those rightly. Something we've been saying over and over again is the way that we handle emotions, there's two ways to do it wrong. You either, you can vent your emotions, you know, you take your anger, you take your grief, you take your happiness or whatever, and you just, you know, vomit it out all over everyone. And, and that's not the way to handle them. But then there's another thing that you can do. You can stuff them down and pretend they're not there. And that also is dangerous. That will, uh, because uh, emotions are like the check engine light in your car. If you cover them over, then that's going to lead to damage down the road. You need to go get that examined. So the proper way to handle your emotions, don't vent them, don't stuff them, but you take them before God in prayer and you process them in His presence. Your emotions are a summons to come into His presence and process what's going on in your heart. Because emotions... Uh, they, they communicate things to us about the deepest loves of our heart. And they're meant to motivate these different actions. And they connect us to God and one another in deeper ways than you can with just your mind or with just your actions. God wants to connect to us on this deep emotional level because he's a God who has emotions. So we've looked at, the dip, we've looked at happiness and we've looked at grief. And we've seen that God is a happy God, but he's also a God who grieves. He's also a God that there are things in his world that grieve him. And we talked some of last week about what grief is by looking at God. Not last week, two weeks ago. Um, We saw there that grief is the emotional response to something like a wound. It's the emotional equivalent of needing to get stitches of going to the hospital when you've been stabbed, when you've been harmed, when you've been hurt, when you've gotten in an accident. You've lost something, and you need to take the time. That's what your emotion of grief is telling you to do, is to take the time to step back and heal. And that's what grief is for. It's the, it's the emotion of healing. And so tonight, what we're going to do is, so last week we talked about God's grief, two weeks ago, and this week we're going to talk about good grief. That's my dad joke pun, and no one likes it but me, and that's perfectly fine. One day you'll all be dads, and not all of you, 50% of you. One day you'll either be a dad who makes stupid jokes, or a mom, 
and wife who has to laugh at those stupid jokes um, out of politeness and kindness. That's just side advice. Anyway, um, so the first thing I want to see about grief is that it's something that we desperately want to avoid, right? You know, you don't want to be sad. You don't want to grieve. You don't want to, you don't want to feel this emotion. It's not one that we like. But here's the thing about grief. Grief, unlike the other emotions, is guaranteed in this life. Grief is guaranteed in this life. So we're going to look at Genesis 3 uh, at the very beginning. Why is grief guaranteed? How, 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 why is grief a guarantee in this life? In Genesis 3, we see what happens. What happens? Uh, God, Adam and Eve, they rebel against God. They sin. They fall. And God comes to them, calls to them in the garden and says, where are you? Finds them and then begins this questioning back and forth, finds out what happened. They blame each other. You know, Eve blames us. Eve blames Adam, blames Eve. Eve blames the serpent. And so then the Lord takes that and reverses the order in which the blame fell down and pronounces curses. On everybody involved in this sin. Or maybe not on them specifically, we'll see. So first, the, Lord, came, the Lord, Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. He said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. And then he turns to the man. He says to the man, because you listened to your wife and not me and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it. By means of your painful labor. I don't know if I copied my translation into there. I may have just done the ESV, but let's see. Yeah, you'll eat from it by the, by the means of your painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow, literally by the sweat of your nose. He says, you know, you, have, you guys worked in gardens before, you worked outside, that's Alabama. You've all worked outside when it's hot, you know, and you're bent over the garden and you're digging and you're tilling and you're doing whatever. And what, what's, what's now watering the soil in front of you? The sweat is dripping off your head and it gets, and where's it drip off from? It comes and drips right off your nose. I love the specificity of this language that God uses. By the sweat of your nose, you're going to be bent over facing the dirt to get some meager living out of it so that, water, so that the water that drips off your nose will be what, what uh, waters this earth. By the sweat of, your, by sweat of your brow, the sweat of your nose, until you return to the ground since you were taken from it, for you are dust and you will return to dust. I want us to notice just a couple things. This is just by way of introduction about grief. Grief is guaranteed because of sin. Grief is guaranteed because of sin. 
But notice, who does God curse in these verses? Curses the serpent, right? What else does he curse? Does he curse the woman? Does he curse the man? He doesn't curse them. He curses the environment around them. He curses childbirth. He says, listen, because of what you've done and because of this rebellion, because you have cut yourself off from me and gone into a world of sin, what's going to happen now is there is now a war that has begun and that war is going to be waged in your womb. There's going to be a war between the seed of the serpent and your seed. And you're never going to know. You're going to give birth to children and you're never going to know until later whether that's the seed, whether, whether that child is going to be the seed of the woman, the seed of hope, the seed uh, is, going to be, is going to be one of God's people or is going to belong to the, to the serpent. And you see in the rest of Genesis this kind of play out, especially Esau, uh, Jacob and Esau. I'm not going to go down that rabbit trail. All right, so he also curses not the man, but he curses the dirt. He curses the earth. He curses the work that he has to do. There was work in the garden. It was good work. But now, because of sin, it's cursed, and there's difficulty in it. It's not going to just yield up. The ground just isn't going to yield up freely uh, for somebody who's in rebellion against its master. So, secondly, there's more reason that we are guaranteed grief in this life, not just because of sin, but because we're followers of Christ. Paul says this in 2 Timothy, You followed my teaching, talking to his uh, young disciple Timothy, You followed my teaching, my conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, and endurance, along with the persecutions and sufferings. You've seen how I've been persecuted. You've seen how I've suffered. That came to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. What persecutions I endured. And yet, the Lord rescued me from them all. In fact, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's a guarantee of something worthy of grief. And then finally, Jesus gives us some encouraging words. I like what he says in John 16 before he goes to the cross, talking to his last night with his disciples. He says, I've told you these things, all that I've just told you, so that in me you may have peace. Now, I like that he starts with that. He opens with, listen, I've told you all these things, and I want to guarantee you some peace. If you're in me, you're going to have some peace. Because in the, you will have suffering in this world. Because you will suffer. But he starts with the guarantee of peace. That's very comforting. So then he says, be courageous. I have conquered the world. So we live in a world that's cursed by sin where we are elect exiles in the midst of a world who is at war with us, and therefore we should expect persecution. But in the midst of all of this, we have this guarantee from Christ of a hope beyond all this, and of His peace that penetrates the grief 
So I want to talk tonight about three things about grief. So grief is guaranteed. Therefore, I want to talk three things about grief. I want to talk about the producers of grief. what, What produces grief? I want to talk about the purpose of grief. And I want to talk about the prescription for grief. First, the producers of grief. What causes grief? We talked about, when we, when we talked about happiness, these, this series of needs, right? Here's, here's my favorite slide that I have up here. Uh, we are needy creatures by design. Fact, you are needy. You're a needy thing. Now, does that strike you as uh, humiliating? Does that seem like it? That seems like an insult, right? You're a needy person because there is no other kind of person. God is the creator and the only being in the universe without any needs. He created you with needs by design. It's not a bug. It's a feature that you would be a needy thing. You rely on someone else and other things for everything in your life. So you have these different kinds of needs. Um, And grief is the the emotional experience, is the emotional response. It's the wound that we experience when any of our needs, when any of the very necessary things we need to live are lost. When those things are lost to us, we feel this emotional response of grief in order to pull back and figure out how we, can, uh, find, how we can get those needs actually met. So here's a couple of different, there's seven different kinds of needs, seven different kinds of things that we need. We have physiological needs, things like air, water, food, shelter, sleep, clothing. Air, water, there's my clothing. I figured top hat, everybody needs a top hat. Um, there are things that we need. We need these things. What happens, and, and there's an there's increasing scale of how desperately we need these things, right? How bad do you need air? You could hold your breath for, what, 30 seconds? My daughters, we go swimming, and they love to see how long I can go under the water and hold my breath because they, they think I'm some sort of whale. They think it's miraculous. They just, you know, like, he was under for 30 seconds. I thought he was going to die. And because... They're right about this attitude that I need air to live. If I don't breathe, I'm dependent on this atmosphere around me. How needy of a thing are you that you you need these tiny little molecules that you can't even see to pass in and out of your lungs and go into your bloodstream just so you don't die? You can't live without it for three minutes. Three minutes without air and your brain dead. What about water? How long can you go without water? A little longer than air. Like you can survive without water for maybe three days before you die of dehydration, depending on the temperature outside. In Alabama, you might make it one or two. Uh, but you need it. You desperately need this, this liquid. God has designed us this way to depend upon the things of the earth. Food. You can go a little longer, maybe 40 days. You know, that seems to be the record that Jesus set, you know, six weeks or so before you start to starve to death. Shelter, sleep, you go insane without sleep. There's, you are so needy that you have to be switched off for eight out of every 24 hours. 
you are so desperately weak that 16 hours of activity, it doesn't even have to be vigorous activity, and you get to the end of the day and you go, oh man, I'm tired, I need to go to sleep, and you're not wrong. You need to sleep. God has made us for sleep. My daughter, my oldest daughter, has been struggling with going to sleep lately because she's been uh, reckoning with, uh, with, a, with a fear of death and, and what, what that means. And there's this thing that I've told her about that the Puritans used to talk about. The Puritans had this set of prayers about sleep that, where they would talk to their kids and they would say, Listen, sleep is every night you get a dress rehearsal for death. And every morning you get, a, you get an experience of the resurrection. You lay yourself down and sleep. To, you, trust, you are trusting God when you lay yourself down to sleep. To protect you, to care for you. You're, 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 you're doing this thing that you, that's absolutely necessary for you. But you have to become completely vulnerable for eight hours every day. You also have these needs... You have, you, we have safety needs. It's not just our physiological nature that, need, that has needs. We need those things, those physiological needs to be protected. We have, we have needs for safety. You need personal security. You need employment. You need money, right? In our world, you need money. You need resources. You need things to be able to live and function. You're dependent. Think about the web that just in these first two sets of needs, the web of dependence that makes up your life. All the different things that you are dependent upon. And it's not just that. We need, we need physiological things. We need safety and protection. But we need love and belonging. We were made for community. We were made to be connected to one another. We were made to be connected to God. You were not made to be isolated and alone. So we need love and belonging, friendships, intimacy, family, a sense of connection to other people that we're not alone. But, no, but more than that, we need esteem. You were made for honor and glory. You were made as God's image bearer. You were made to have His, to be wrapped and clothed in His glory. You were made for that. And you have this, and because of sin, you have this desperate sense, or you ought to, that you're missing something because you don't, you don't feel that glory. You don't have a sense that God looks at you and holds you up and says, Behold, my child in whom I am well pleased. You need that. You desperately need it. Fifth, you need identity. We need, we need a sense of identity and purpose. We need somebody outside of ourselves to tell us who we are and to tell us what we're made for. Sixth, we need and this is the most desperate need that fills all the other needs, that connects to all the others. Even in the garden, what did Adam need? More than the food from the trees, more than the air he breathed, more than the water he drank, more than the safety and security and protection of the garden from the chaos outside, more than the esteem of God, more than the companionship of his wife, he needed more than a sense of identity, a name given to him by God and a purpose. He needed communion with God. He needed God's own life. That's what the tree of life represents in the Garden of Eden. It's communion. It's, he goes and he eats from the tree and takes God's own life into himself. 
And without that, all the other things end up where? You can have all your other needs met. You can have every single one of them met perfectly. You're perfectly healthy. You're perfectly wealthy. You're perfectly wise. You're, you're well thought of and esteemed. All your other needs are met. But you don't have this one thing. You don't have communion with God. And what will happen? You will return to the dust from whence you came. Because... This is eternal life, that they know you, God, the only God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ, that we know God through Jesus Christ. That is eternal life. That is communion with God. Now, why is that communion with God? Why do we need God through Jesus Christ now? Because this need, this communion, this, this need for communion with God can't be met anymore. We've lost it because of sin. This is the greatest grief. This is the greatest misery. We've lost this communion with God. And because we've lost it, it creates this seventh need. We need redemption. We need someone, we need Christ to come and restore the relationship with God that we've broken in our sin. So those are kinds of this, those are seven needs, seven kinds of needs that we have. And grief is the experience of loss when all when any of these needs are threatened or actually lost. That's what we feel in response to it. Now, what's the purpose of grief? Three purposes we talk about with each of the each each uh, emotion. One, it's meant to communicate to us the deepest loves of our heart. Now, grief more than any other emotion is the most profound communicator about the deepest loves of our heart. C.S. Lewis says this in The Problem of Pain. Now, error and sin both have this property, that the deeper they are, the less their victim suspects their existence. They are masked evil. Sin and error. Sin and error, they're masked evil. You can't detect that there's evil there. Pain on the other hand, is unmasked, unmistakable evil. Every man knows that something is wrong when he is being hurt. And pain is not only immediately recognizable evil, but evil impossible to ignore. We can rest contentedly in our sins and in our stupidities. And we can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So the first thing that pain is meant to do is to rouse us from our stupor. If you don't feel the pain of the loss of communion with God when you sin, that should, God has to bring in other losses, other griefs, other things to push towards that grief, to push towards that pain, to, put, to, to reveal to you, to open up to you what you should be grieving over. That's what's going on with Adam and Eve. You've sinned against me. You've lost communion with me. And now pain has to be introduced to the world so that you can be continually made aware that something is not right. And I have this great, gaping, deep need. So it communicates to us the deepest loves of our heart. What grieves you? What you throw? What you, 
Here's a very helpful thing. Let's say you've got this boyfriend, this girlfriend that you're just absolutely in love with. And she breaks your heart. He breaks your heart. That's a grievous thing, right? It's the thing to grieve over. You've lost this hope of love and connection and belonging. But do you get so desperately sad from that? What does it reveal about the true loves of your heart that you fall into a deep depression that you can't get out of? That you fall into this deep gaping hole, you despair of life. I might as well not live. I'd rather die than live. If that's the attitude of your heart, what's that supposed to be revealing to you? It's supposed to be showing you that you loved this thing too much. This was an idol to begin with, and it needs to be pulled out. It needs to be removed from you. This was a deadly thing that God has removed. Second, grief connects us to one another. Grief connects us to one another, gives us connection to one another in ways that no other emotion does. When you connect with someone else in their happiness, that's great. Rejoicing with those who rejoice is great. But when you mourn with those who mourn, you get this much deeper connection with the other person. Uh, And it connects us to God when we grieve over our sin, rejoice over the things that rejoice Him but we also grieve. We recognize the grievous nature of things that grieve him. Third, grief is a catalyst for catharsis. That's my alliterative um, masterwork there. Uh, catalyst for catharsis. Catharsis is cleansing or healing. It's a catalyst for healing. It's meant, like I said, to get you to pull away And take that time to heal. Now, that brings us to the third point, to the prescription for grief. What is the biblical prescription for grief? How do we experience grief as this catalyst for catharsis, this this thing that will bring us to healing? Well, the Bible has a great prescription for it. The book of Psalms, open up in the middle of your Bible. Just go ahead and crack it open. And the, the biggest book in your Bible is what? The book of Psalms, and it's right in the middle. 75% of those books, we're going to be talking about, we're going to read Psalm 42 in a second so you can crack open there. But 75% of the Psalms, well, 75 of them are pure laments. That's half. Half of the Psalms are dedicated to how do you grieve before God. And another 25, 30 have strong uh, elements of lament. So what is a lament? That's one thing I want us to talk about tonight. I want to talk about three um, things that a lament, how a lament works and what we do in lament. And I want to use Psalm 42 as the uh, way we do that. So in Psalm, open up to Psalm 42. I'm going to read that now. And then we'll point out some parts of a lament. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. I thirst for God, the living God. When can I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while all day long people say to me, Where is your God? 
I remember this as I pour out my heart. How I walked with many, leading the festive procession to the house of God with joyful and thankful shouts. Why, my soul, are you cast down within me? Why are you in such turmoil? Put your hope in God, for I will again praise Him, my Savior and my God. I am deeply depressed. Therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan. And the peaks of Hermon from Mount Mizar, deep, calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your billows have swept over me. Yahweh will send His faithful love by day. His song will be with me in the night, a prayer to the God of my life. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about in sorrow because of the enemy's oppression? My adversaries, they taunt me as if crushing my bones, while all day long they say to me, where is your God? Why, my soul, are you cast down within me? Why are you in such turmoil? Put your hope in God. For I will again praise Him, my Savior and my God. So there are three big parts to a lament. The first thing you do, and this is how you learn to grieve well. Learn this. Learn to do this and and practice it before the grief comes. Practice it with little griefs so that when the big grief comes, you know how to lament. You're young now. Little griefs are probably all you have. So this is more or less preparing you for the future. Big griefs coming. I don't know your life. You might have had big griefs already, and I hope not. And I hope you don't have big giant ones that come. But if you do, I want you to be ready. So the first thing you do is, the first thing the psalmist does is they acknowledge God in their grief. And they do this in two ways. There's two parts of a lament that they uh, do this by. They acknowledge God in their grief. First, by claiming God's grace. Do you see in Psalm 42 his claim on God's grace? Look back at verse 1. He opens up and says this, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My, thir- my soul thirsts for God, the living God. When can I come and appear before God? Do you see his... He's got this complaint to give to God, right? But where does he start? He starts with, I don't know anywhere else I can go to get water but you. And I'm thirsty. When does a deer pant for flowing streams? It's not the regular part of a deer's life for it to go about panting. There's a drought in the land when a deer goes about panting for water. God brought this, he's acknowledging that God has brought this drought into his life, that he's brought about the very thing that is causing his grief. But at the same time, he's saying, you're the only real solution. He's making this claim on God that he has a claim to God's grace. Second, the psalmist will cry out 
to God. And this is just a acknowledgement of God uh, and a, that, that the answer is going to be found in him. Uh, and you see this in different ways, in different psalms, in different laments. In Psalm 42, uh, you see it in verse 5. You see it in, the, uh, in the, what's called the refrain. It's repeated. What is it? Why, O oh my soul, are you cast down within me? Are you downcast, O oh my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? His complaint is initially, he's got lots of complaints, and we'll look at some of those in a minute, but his, he's, he's acknowledging that I need your help, God. So you make a claim on God's grace, you cry to him for help, for help and that's acknowledging God in your grief, not ignoring him. Uh, second, you look at your grief and you interrogate it. So acknowledge God in your grief, and then we'll see the psalmist interrogates his grief. He goes through a litany of things and shows how, and, well, and I'll compare it to the losses, that, to the needs that we just talked about. And we'll see that he's grieving over the loss of almost every kind of need conceivable. So Psalm 42, 3, my tears have been my food day and night. He's not sleeping. He's up weeping, and he can't eat. So he's he's hungry, and he's tired. So he's he's looking at, okay, I'm grieving because I'm hungry and I'm tired. My tears are my food, day and night. This psychological, his physiological needs aren't being met. And so he acknowledges that grief to God. In 1 Kings 19, uh, Elijah goes... Right. He's this great picture of how God interacts with us in depression when we're sad, when we have these kinds of griefs. He, he has he has this big victory right in chapter 18. You know, the big victory. He goes and he says, all right, prophets of Baal, set up your altar. I'll set up my altar. I'm going to call down fire. And whoever's whoever's God responds, that's going to be the winner. And we're going to all going to know who the real God is around here. And he makes fun of their God. They're cutting themselves or whatever. He says, maybe he's in the bathroom. Maybe you need to check the can and see if he's in there. And, I mean, he's, he's really mocking them. And uh, he goes and says, when it's his turn, no fire comes down. When it's his turn, he says, all right, guys, dump a bunch of water on here. Pile it on my, pour a bunch of water on my altar. And then he just says, all right, Yahweh, go. Your turn. Do it. And fire comes down and consumes the altar and melts the rock into molten lava. Now, and then he kills all the prophets of Baal. Now, what would you think would follow that in this kind of culture? Here's what Elijah thought. Elijah thought that was the beginning of a revival. Elijah thought, surely everybody's going to see that Baal, are, that Baal worship is, is worthless and that Yahweh is the true God. And so I'm going to go to the capital and I'm going to start preaching the gospel and everybody's going to repent. It's going to be amazing. And he goes and as soon as he gets to the gate, they say, get out of here, Elijah. I'm, we're going to kill you. So what does he do? He tucks tail and runs. He runs and he flees. He's going to Mount Sinai. But on the way, he gets exhausted and falls asleep under a bush. And then in 1 Kings 19, the angel of Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, comes to him. And what do you think the first thing God's going to do when he comes to him in this depressed mode that he's in? He says, I, 
Elijah's under the bush and he says, I just want to die. I don't want to do this anymore. So the angel of the Lord shows up and it says that he touches him. Just lays his hand on him. And then he cooks him breakfast. He says, hey, eat something. All right, now, get some rest. Take a nap. I'll be back tomorrow. And he comes back and he puts his hand and he touches him again. He just goes and lays his hand on him. He knows that Elijah needs this physical touch. He, need to be, he needs to be reminded that, that he's not alone. And then he makes him breakfast again. He needs food. He knows that he's this physical being, this needy person who has, who needs, who has this desperate need for more food and more rest. And so he has him rest up. There's no other psychological philosophy in the world like the Bibles that so holistically deals with the nature of the human being. You are a physical being. The Bible acknowledges that. Sometimes you might get really depressed. You might be really sad. And what you need is a sandwich, you know. What you need is a good meal and good friends and a reminder that there's something to hope for. Second, he grieves, the psalmist grieves over the loss of his safety. You see, he says in verse 4, I used to lead the throng. I used to go up and lead the people in, 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 in procession before the temple. Later on, he says, I'm at Mount Hermon. I'm at Mount Mizar. Now, that means nothing to you. But, a, but to a Bible nerd like myself, I'll tell you what that means. Mount Hermon and Mount Mizar is in the farthest northern parts, far away from Jerusalem. You guys might be Bible nerds too, so you might know. But why, why Mount Hermon? Why Mount Mizar? It's in the farthest north region, and, Ju- and Jerusalem's down in the south. Why is he up here? This guy, he's one of the sons of Korah, which means he, he was a worship leader in the temple. That was his job, to lead the procession in praise at the temple at festivals. Why is he in Mount Hermon? Why is he hundreds of miles from home? Well, because Mount Mizar was a staging ground for the Babylonian exile. It was where they brought all the exiles before taking them off to Babylon after the destruction of Jerusalem. He's lost his job. He's lost his security. He's lost everything. He has no way of making a living. And so he grieves that before God. God knows we have these things. We have these needs, and he acknowledges them to God. Third, he's lost this sense of love and belonging that he had. He had friends. He had family. He had connection with other people, this this throng, this multitude that he's around. And he's grieving the loss of those connections. He's exiled and isolated. He's also grieving the loss of his sense of identity. He doesn't, he's, he's, he's lost this, that deep sense of identity that you draw from having a purpose in your work. He remembers it with grief. And most of all, verse 7, He's grieving the loss of his peace with God. Deep. Now, who, who is poems, you know, poetry, right? Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. 
Your breakers and your waves have gone over me. Now, some of us might like breakers and waves. You go to the beach, we like the ocean, we're ocean-loving people. The ocean and the waterfall, crashing water to an Israelite, represents all the chaos and evil in the world. He's saying, you have hurled me into hell. You have cast me into a hell, and these are your breakers, your waterfalls, your waves. You're the one who has sent me into exile here. I don't have... Do you see the irony of in the beginning? He's saying, I'm so thirsty, I'm about to die, and you're burying me in water. I, have the, I, could, I could drink all I want. I could, my actual thirst could be quenched. But there's a, all your breakers and all your waves, all I can experience you as is punishment. All I can experience you as is terror. I've lost my communion with you. So he grieves over that. So just by way of example... I just want you to see that there are all these things that you can bring before God. Now, the third, the third thing, or the second thing that you do in a lament is that um, you complain. <laughs> you complain. Now, that sounds wrong, right? You complain. You're supposed to complain to God. That's what he's doing here. He's complaining to God. He's lodging all of his complaints. Now, in, think back to Numbers. In the book of Numbers, what does God uh, get furiously angry at the Israelites for doing all the time? Complaining. Grumbling. What's the difference? What's the difference between the Israelites in the desert, in the wilderness, and the psalmist here? at Mount Hermon, Mount Mizar. What's the difference? Any thoughts? Who did the Israelites complain to? Each other. They just looked at each other and said, Oh man, do you remember Egypt? We used to get all the free food. You just reach your hand into the meat pot, which is just weird, and pull out some meat and eat it. You could get free cucumbers for days. What a paradise. Free cucumbers and meat from a pot. But they're remembering these things as beautiful and glorious. Oh, the days. Of course the food was free. You were a slave. They had to feed you something so that they could enslave you and keep you working. Of course it was free. This is, they're gathering up manna from the ground so that they're fed by God's own hand. And they're complaining and missing the meat pots and the cucumbers. And they're complaining not to God. The point is, what they should have done was taken their complaint to God. And said, listen, we're hungry. Listen, we have needs. God welcomes your complaints. He can handle them. What he does not tolerate is your gossiping and tearing down other people's faith by making them by destroying their ability to have faith and trust in God. So take your complaint to God. Complain to Him. Confess your sin is another thing. There's a series of laments, a series of psalms um, that 
especially if there is sin involved in your grief and you need to grieve over that sin. There are a series of psalms called the Penitential Psalms. They're up there right now. If you want to jot those down, great to have on hand because you will sin 40 times before you get home tonight. And they're really helpful to have, to be able to grieve over your sin as God brings it to your mind. And so you confess your sin, but all, not all, not all um, laments involve a confession of sin. Some protest their righteousness, like here. He says, I'm actually not done anything wrong. I've, I wasn't an idolater, and I'm in exile, although I'm righteous. And that is sometimes the case. So some, you confess your sin, but also confess your righteousness. Interrogating your grief means recognizing that sometimes this is caused by your sin, and sometimes it isn't. Look at the ways that your sin could be involved in what grievous thing has come upon you, but don't just beat yourself up and think, my sin is the only cause of this. Sometimes God brings grief into your life not to discipline you for sin, but as a test to see if you're going to trust Him so that He can give you greater opportunities in the future. The third part of interrogating your sin is um, curse your enemies. Now, this one's fun. Uh, Curse your enemies. The psalmists will often pronounce curses on their enemies. Now, in the Old Testament, your enemies were externalized. They were other people who were warring against you. Uh, But in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, uh, we don't kill the hostages. In the Old Testament, they were more pray-and-spray kind of culture with regard to their enemies. But we are called as Christians to a kind of precision. Paul says this, he says, if you interact with your enemies in such a way that uh, you are truthful and yet kind to them, you might free them from the snares of the devil in which they've been caught. What does that mean? It means that they're hostages, And you are there as a hostage negotiator, and you don't shoot the hostages. So we don't attack other people. We war against powers and principalities. And a lot of those have their hooks in your heart. So we make war on our own flesh. We make war on on the sin within us first. And then we try to free other people from the sin that has a hold of them. So cursing our enemies is part of the process of lamenting. Cursing that I have this nature, that I have this sin nature that continues with me. That is a grievous thing that I have this sin nature. And I want it cursed. I want it gone. I want it dead. I want to long for a day when it's gone. So the third thing we do is we express is we need redemption. We need to look to redemption as the healing balm of grief. And we do that in two ways. The psalmists do that in two ways. They express Confidence in their confirmation. You see it towards the end of Psalms, towards the end of all these lament Psalms. You see this strange turn that goes from grieving and complaining to all of a sudden praising God. Look at Psalm 42. Look at the refrain again. He makes this turn, and I love, I love the turn here because it's so helpful. In verse 5, Why, my soul, are you cast down within me? Why are you in such turmoil? Put your hope in God, for I will again praise Him, my Savior and my God. Here's the thing. 
Interrogate your sin. Interrogate your grief. Interrogate it. But it will turn to depression. It will turn to something sour and destructive over a long course of time if you don't do what the psalmist does here. What does he do? He interrogates his grief. He knows every inch of it. But then he grabs himself. He takes himself in hand. And he says, listen, listen to me, soul. You're going to stop this nonsense. Listen. I've looked at every reason you have for grief, and I've got one reason for hope for you, and it's better than all your grief. Now listen to me. You ever done that? Do you ever had to do that to yourself? Grab yourself, take yourself in hand, tell yourself, hope in God. You will again praise Him. Whatever grief you're facing, whatever destruction might come into your life, whatever you've lost, you have a gain that is guaranteed to be greater than all your loss. Because you will again praise God. You will again praise God. And I have proof that not even death, we have proof. We have so much more than this poor psalmist. So much more to to base that hope in, right? We should be the most hopeful people in the world because not even death, not even death can cause you to lose anything. Death itself is now gain. And even if you're facing death, even if I were facing tumors and cancer and rotting of my body and I'm going to the grave and I'm going to lose, I'm never going to see my daughter, you know, if I were to die and I'll never see my daughters marry, I'll never get to see my wife again, I'll never have all these joyous experiences and I'm facing the loss of everything. On the other end of that, I will again praise God. Don't short-circuit your grief. But at a certain point, you have to grab yourself, take yourself in hand, and remember your hope. Analyze your hope, the deepest hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And you know that that you'll be raised from the dead because one who raised himself from the dead who laid down his life and took it up again at the commission of the Father, promises you, you put your faith in me, I'll raise you up on the last day. You have a guaranteed hope. You have guaranteed grief in this life. But in Christ, we also have a guaranteed hope that can carry us through all the things that would bring us grief and threaten to undo us. Thanks, let me pray. Father, thank you uh, for your word. Thank you for the Psalms of Lament. Thank you that over and over and over and over again, uh, we see psalmists uh, lamenting in all these different ways, all these different things, all these different griefs and complaints and cries to you, that we have this great example to follow, that we do, we're not alone in our grief, but we have you that we can go to. Help us, Lord, to become a people who grieve well, who lament over the things that grieve you, who, who bring our complaints and our needs to you, who cast our cares on you because you care for us and you showed us that care in Christ, through whom I pray, who lives and reigns with you, together with the Holy Spirit, one God, forever praised. Amen.